AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky, and we're going to be doing the articles for the December AJT issue for AJT Highlights. With me, as always, is Roz Manon from University of Nebraska, and this is our second go-around with our AJT internship, intern Oscar Serrano from Hartford, and uh, welcome to both of you. Great to be here. Yeah, great. So we've got five papers for this month, and we're let me just list them out by title and author, and I'll give you the order of how we're going to do this. So Oscar is going to start off with, actually, there are two papers by Garg et al. The first one will be the kidney evaluation of living kidney donor candidates, U.S. practices in 2017. And the second one will be metabolic, cardiovascular, and substance abuse evaluation of living kidney donor candidates, U.S. practices in 2017. So sort of two papers on living kidney donor candidate evaluation um, kind of going together. Then I'll be doing an interesting paper from Japan by Miyachi et al. The combination of male donors' high muscle mass and quality is an independent productive factor for graft loss after living donor liver transplantation. And then Roz will do finish with two papers. Uh, the first one clinical by Senev et al. Clinical importance of extended second field high resolution HLA genotyping for kidney transplantation. And then finish with a basic paper by Giraud et al. The inhibition of EIF5A hypusination by G, I hope I said that right, by GC7, a preconditioning protocol to prevent brain death-induced renal injuries in a preclinical porcine kidney transplantation model. Okay, so Oscar, why don't you kick it off with the first GARG paper? Thanks for uh, being here. Okay, thank you for having me, Josh, and uh, uh, welcome, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here. I have uh, the distinct pleasure of uh, reviewing these two articles, which are articles that uh, were published by a very well-established group of investigators who have been in the uh, living kidney donor wellness uh, scene for quite some time. The two papers are essentially uh, evaluating practices of what centers in the U.S. are doing today, or at least in 2017, so a more contemporary uh, evaluation of practices across the United States. The uh, rationale for doing this, these two articles basically stems from a similar survey study that was conducted about uh, over 10 years ago. This was actually in a set of articles that were published in 2007, which had a similar uh, rationale. Uh, a survey was sent out to living donor kidney programs. The papers keep comparing the results from uh, this study, which they're calling the 2017 uh, papers, and comparing it back to uh, the 2005 papers. So basically, uh, the, the crux or the uh, objective of this uh, these two studies are to basically evaluate what donor programs are doing across the country. As we know, the first and foremost, uh, when evaluating kidney donors, the risk of uh, each individual donor developing end-stage renal disease is paramount. It's been established that uh, the risk, this risk of developing end-stage uh, kidney disease is estimated to be about 10 events for every 10,000 at 10 years after donation, but this increases significantly to about 85 events per 10,000 at 25 years post-donation. And uh, a lot of it 
seems to be attributable to diabetes as well as hypertension. And obviously there's always a concern with the African-American population and most recently because of the vast amount of research that has been uh, done on uh, apolipoprotein L1 or ApoL1 genotypes, there's some interest among that. So these investigators sent out uh, a survey that was uh, 59 questions. They did this study in collaboration with uh, UNOS and they basically created a uh, red cap based survey, which they sent out to all medical directors and surgical directors in all US kidney transplant programs. So they basically sent out this study for the first time in June of 2018. And then this was followed up by two reminder emails, which eventually closed the study in late July of 2018. And then they did comparisons, as I said, to the previous 2005 survey. So as far as the results of the first article, which was titled uh, Kidney Evaluation of Living Donor Candidates, as I said, the uh, survey was distributed to 446 program directors across the 223 programs that are currently active in the United States. Of this, they had a response rate of about 31%, with the majority or 61% of respondents being medical directors and the other remaining 38% being surgical directors. What they found is that the, the responding programs, when compared to the non-responding programs, had overall a higher number of transplants as well as living donors. And then they basically broke it down uh, into the various risk factors that they were looking at. So starting with age. So uh, in this current uh, 2017 survey, what they found was is that transplant programs have become less strict in terms of the upper age limit. So in other words, we are including older recipients. Uh, by comparison, the, uh, we are becoming more conservative in the younger donor population. And this is uh, becoming more prevalent as we are finding out more about the long-term effects of uh, donation. In terms of how to determine kidney function, uh, uh, most programs uh, still rely on the 24-hour creatinine clearance and this hasn't changed significantly over the past couple of decades since the 2005 survey. About 30% uh, of programs in 2017 still obtain a measured GFR, uh, as opposed to only 11% in 2005. One other interesting finding is, is that the evaluation of proteinuria has become a little bit more uh, specific. So uh, it, it is now more common to rely on albumin-based measurements so 51% of programs uh, used a random spot urine albumin to create an ratio compared to only 21% in 2005. And uh, as I previously mentioned, APOL1 genotyping is now becoming more popular. About 13% of programs currently perform uh, APOL1 uh, genotyping on all African-American donor candidates. And 32% or about a third of respondents use it selectively. Going further into uh, potential donor candidates with hematuria, uh, there seems to be uh, quite a variation in terms of how to evaluate these particular candidates. There doesn't seem to be one specific uh, set of guidelines. So for instance, about 40% of respondents uh, deem hematuria as anything greater than five red blood cells per high power field, whereas about 38% deem that to be three RBCs and about 15%, about 10 RBC. So there's some ambiguity in terms of how hematuria is evaluated. 
And then also when when we're looking at nephrolithiasis, it appears as though uh, nephrolithiasis or a history of symptomatic stones or asymptomatic stones seems to be best evaluated by a 24-hour urine stone risk profile assessment. And this seems to be pretty standard. It seems uh, fairly consistent that individuals or at least uh, the majority of individuals continue the evaluation when patients have had a history of symptomatic stones or if they had a unilateral single stone, but bilateral stones seems seem to still be a contraindication to move forward with donation. And finally, I think um, when we are looking at non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use, I think the majority of programs still recommend that candidates completely stop NSAID use with about another third, allowing infrequent uh, use. So basically to go into the discussion section, I found there to be uh, five important take-home points from this particular study. So uh, number one, as we discussed, the age restrictions have become uh, less restrictive towards the older age group and uh, more restrictive towards the younger age group. Number two, one of the things that was discussed in the discussion is is that um, the evaluation of GFR, there seems to still be a reliance on the 24-hour creatinine clearance on all donor candidates, but there does not seem to be a, uh, uh, an adjustment for body surface area. There seems to still be this uh, reliance on 80 milliliters per minute as being an acceptable, um, whereas in the paper they discussed that uh, this may not always be uh, uh, the most appropriate especially if someone, um, when you factor in someone's age. So where, whereas an 80 milliliters per minute uh, uh, GFR cutoff may be appropriate for an older candidate, it may not be so for a younger candidate. However, many of the programs still rely on that one, on that one number. As uh, previously number three, uh, urine albumin excretion uh, is uh, commonly assessed as opposed to just general proteinuria. And uh, uh, this happens to be because albuminuria is a better measure of kidney damage. And um, finally, number four, APLO1 uh, high-risk genotype seems to be associated with uh, a higher risk, especially among the African-American population. And I think more programs are relying on its results. And finally, the last thing that uh, I, I did not measure, I did not mention before, the hematuria component, uh, which we talked about briefly, seems to be um, more acceptable now than it was in 2005, especially when we combine urologic evaluations as well as a kidney biopsy. In some cases, things or diagnoses such as uh, thin basement membrane disease seem to be somewhat exclusionary of continuing with the kidney donor evaluation process. So I thought this paper was very good because I think in uh, living donor candidate evaluation, there aren't any rigid set guidelines and a lot of us are searching for what our uh, colleagues are doing across the country. In terms of the second paper, again, this was a uh, this, this same exact survey that had been sent out to the same programs, the same number of programs, the same number of respondents. And here what they basically looked at was a, a variety of cardiovascular, metabolic, and uh, substance use evaluation practices. And so starting with the, the results, um, they looked at hypertension. And they basically found that in 2017, uh, about 10% of programs routinely perform ambulatory blood pressure monitoring for all donor candidates. And, and the other uh, uh, thing that I found interesting is that about two thirds 
will perform it for anyone with a blood pressure of 140, uh, above 140, solid blood pressure above 140, and about 50% will util utilize ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and anyone who has borderline uh, high blood pressure. So anyone with a systolic in the 130s or diastolic in the 85 to 90 range. In terms of exclusionary criteria, in about two thirds of programs, most uh, they will exclude candidates if they require two or more antihypertensive medications. So I think this is pretty fairly common practice across the United States that if someone is stable with their high blood pressure and they're only on one medication, they may still proceed, or at least this should not be an exclusion criteria for them donating. As far as African-Americans, I'm sorry, for non-African-Americans, the, there was a, a pretty in-depth discussion about what programs are doing in terms of findings on uh, echocardiograms as well as um, stress tests. So for instance, for uh, non-African-Americans, about a third of programs are willing to accept if there is no evidence of uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, and another third uh, are willing to accept if there's no evidence of uh, hypertrophy and the candidate is above a certain age, so like being 50 years old is usually the cutoff. In terms of the African-American population, I think we're being a little bit more uh, conservative in terms of allowing uh, individuals to move forward, especially if they have a history of hypertension. Moving on to glucose intolerance as well as prediabetes, I think the majority of programs, so 86%, still continue to use the glucose tolerance test or the GTT uh, compared to fasting glucose. Pretty much this 86% this of programs rely uh, heavily on this as the hallmark for determining whether someone should proceed with their uh, donation evaluation or not. And the paper went further to say that about two thirds of programs uh, in 2017, and interestingly, this hasn't changed since 2005, the uh, elevated two hour glucose test above 140 is pretty much an exclusion uh, of candidates. Moving on to a family history of diabetes. So I think this is one of those uh, areas where there's uh, a bit more ambiguity because there's no objective cri criteria, but I think the majority of programs or 65% will exclude candidates who have a strong family history of diabetes uh, in the absence of any other risk factors. And then in, as far as obesity goes, I think uh, this paper, once again, establishes that the majority of us are, are, are doing pretty much the standard BMI of 35 and below. There's very few programs that are willing to accept candidates uh, above a BMI of 40. And interestingly here, um, this is something that often comes up in uh, living donor uh, MDC conferences, what we do with uh, someone with steatosis. What I found is interesting is, is that about a third of the U.S. transplant programs will exclude donors with just steatosis or LFT abnormalities. Finally, uh, what I think was one of the most useful parts of this article is that when it talked about stress testing and echocardiography, I know that in many programs we evaluate the risks versus benefits of doing stress testing and other types of non-invasive and invasive cardiac uh, monitoring. And... Um, what I found is that about three quarters of the programs perform stress tests in old, the older donor, so anyone being above 50 years old. And, and certainly that number is higher for someone with cardiovascular risk, so they deem that anyone with greater than two risk factors. Um, also, 
about 70% of donors who otherwise were healthy, but were found to have, were found to have abnormalities in their uh, EKGs. What I also found interesting, because my program seems to do this on pretty much everybody, is that only about 48% of uh, the older candidates, so those being above 50, are sent for echocardiograms. Only about a, a smaller minority of these go on to get stress tests. So again, finally, one of the um, other things that this paper evaluated was cigarette smoking as well as marijuana use or uh, a history of substance abuse disorder or alcohol. And uh, I found um, the, this section to be somewhat um, reassuring because um, I think at many places, smoking is, is somewhat of a black box and what we're supposed to do about smoking in the past. I know when they compared to um, historical accounts, smoking was, was uh, kind of an, um, a hard uh, exclusionary criteria for donating. And what these uh, findings are in, in this survey study is that there isn't a whole lot of uh, programs that are excluding patients because of a history of smoking. Uh, I think cessation of smoking about four weeks prior to surgery is requested by the minority of programs, so about 45%. And in terms of marijuana use, those numbers are even less, partly because in many places around the country, medical marijuana is legal. I think in terms of the substance and alcohol abuse disorders, those are left to be evaluated by a mental health professional and uh, the living donor committee doesn't really make any determinations based on that. So once again, I think this paper brings home a lot of uh, assurances for many of us who are, seem to be doing what the rest of the country is doing in terms of evaluating donors with uh, hypertension who have been stable on uh, single agents or for those that are on double agents, we know that those are uh, less likely to be uh, put through uh, onto the evaluation process in terms of uh, diabetes management. I think, um, most of us rely on that two-hour uh, glucose tolerance test being 140 or less, or hemoglobin A1C less than 5.7. Finally, when they talk about obesity and cardiovascular testing, I found it useful that uh, the majority of donors being done uh, now compared to, for example, they mentioned there in the 1970s, of course, are going to be more obese. And we are being a little bit more relaxed in terms of that. However, they do uh, take into account that Recently, there was a, a paper published that demonstrated that those individuals that donate while obese will go on to have a higher risk of end-stage renal disease. And finally, the cardiovascular testing, what I said, what I, uh, said earlier was that the, for me, it was pretty interesting that the, the majority of programs aren't going out and doing stress testing on everybody. So I found these papers to be uh, very useful in terms of what learning what the rest of the country is doing. I think uh, they provide some guidance as to how to move forward into the next decade and how to best assess an individual's risk profile in terms of uh, uh, donating a kidney. Great. Thanks, Oscar. In the interest of time, I don't know, Roz, do you have a quick comment or? Well, I, I want to bring the readers to look at the accompanying editorial by Gill and Burr, because I think it highlights some of the some of the more difficult issues when you do these surveys. And in first and foremost, it's, you know, now three years old and, and the response rate was really quite low, uh, 31%. And so when you have a, a heterogeneous practice and you're only picking, you know, you're only getting a small 
snapshot of what everybody does. And so I, I looked at it a little bit different, Oscar. I kind of looked at it with my thick glasses on that have, you know, a gradation and the ability to read because I'm getting old. And so the point of it is, is that things have changed, but I was really struck by the variation in practice and I didn't necessarily find it helpful that it was published. I think it's a great work that they did this. Um, it does highlight, you know, very limited information to inform practice right now, and that there's still ongoing challenges, particularly APOL1, which I think back in 2017, you would have said 15% programs, and now it's much more common. And as you point out, there are gaps in our knowledge, and I think that uh, I would look at the editorial, since we're short on time, to talk a little bit more about, you know, if this is a great editorial, because instead of saying it's a great paper, dot, dot, dot. It says it's great paper, but this is what you should be thinking about it further beyond just being a good paper. Okay, great. Well, keeping with the living donor theme, I'm going to do the paper that I thought was uh, really interesting and kind of something I'd never really thought of before. Um, this was a group out of Kyoto who reports on a unique characteristic of a living donor liver trans uh, or a donor, a living donor for liver transplant, and that is um, their muscle mass and how that might impact. Actually, I thought it was going to be about how it impacts the donor outcomes, but it's really about how the donor's muscle mass may impact the living donor recipient that they're giving to. And so the premise is that a higher muscle mass is sort of a marker of biological fitness and biological age. So we all know that there's some 50 and 60 years old year old people that have are very fit and have high muscle mass. And, and sometimes they're excluded from living donation, whereas, uh, you know, younger people when they're they meet the age criteria may not be as good. And so they basically looked at a large number of patients that underwent living donor liver transplantation at Kyoto and looked at, uh, let's see, it was about 376 donor and recipient pairs to essentially assess um, a couple of, they looked at a number of um, variables in both the donor and the recipient, uh, looking at recipient outcomes. And uh, one of the key ones is uh, there's two markers that I had not heard of before. One is donor skeletal muscle mass index, SMI. And the second, which is positive if it's high and intramuscular adipose tissue index IMAC, which is bad if it's high. So if you have a high ratio, that's good. It means you have high muscle to low adipose and sort of the opposite of, of sarcopenia, whereas sarcopenia, you would have low muscle and high fat content. And so they, uh, the long and short is if you look at the, um, some of the, the survival figures, um, they're actually, um, you know, fairly significant. They're significant, but they're really only significant in the male donor group. And so male donors who had high SMI or high SMI to IMAC ratios, the recipients had better outcomes in terms of survival after transplant. And this was not the case with female donors. And uh, we'll get to why that might be in a minute. So kind of looking at uh, some of the other variables too, they clearly showed that uh, donor age, high IMAC and low SMI in the recipient were independent risk factors for 
recipient sur survival. So if the recipients were sarcopenic and older than 40, that was negative. And that, that's fairly well known. But if the donor had a high muscle content with low fat, somehow the, the, that was a protective factor over these things. And so um, what they get into is kind of how, why they came up with these hypotheses. They must have somehow seen this in their patient population and decide to research it. And lo and behold, they found a significant correlation. And the idea here, um, which they talk about is sort of this biological age, that high muscle in a donor, um, low fat, someone who's very physically fit and healthy, has a less in inflammatory state, lower fat in the liver, um, overall healthier that the that the partial graft that they're donating is somehow a correlate of their own body's uh, better metabolism and fitness. And so there was a really nice discussion in the paper about this, the potential reasons for it that I mentioned, uh, the cytokines, the liver function, liver steatosis, lots of sort of hypotheses on this. Certainly this is a, a Japanese population. It may not, uh, in Japanese, uh, the population as we know is, is generally a fitter group than a Western population or an American population. And of course, uh, these types of things need to be validated um, in those groups. Um, I'm not so sure if they, if they, if it did va validate, then it really means that there is this independent protective factor of the living donors' biological fitness. The way that I think about this is, um, it certainly needs to be validated. It's very interesting. Certainly, it it makes you think about when somebody is donating a portion of their liver. It's a you know higher risk uh, donation than something like a kidney. And certainly the donor's outcomes are paramount, but uh, they want to donate the, the liver that's going to be successful in the recipient. And so kind of um, the thought in my mind goes to sort of prehabbing or, or strengthening up the donor before they donate may result in better outcomes, although you don't want to mandate um, anything on a donor or do anything ethically controversial by, by any type of donor manipulation or requiring them to do something. But it, it's sort of evidence to tell living donors to, to um, stay healthy, um, maybe um, you know, exercise, workout, may improve um, uh, the, the recipient's outcomes. But the biological rationale is interesting, but I, I'd like to see more to really understand if this is a real correlation or, or some other factor that we're not measuring. Well, I was wondering cool. if you were going to go out and buy a bunch of Pelotons for the exactly the right homes of the donors. <laughs> <laughs> More like a yeah, like um, you know, like a bench press or something. And and you know, Josh, I did I I skimmed this paper. I'll be brutally honest. And but did they talk about male hormonal replacement therapy? You know, all this no. lab on the new, you know, Roman yeah. big T, blah blah blah. You know, is that have did they mention anything? I know they no, but that that would not be advisable actually because that could um, that actually can have some uh, can cause cholestasis in the donor. I've actually seen some patients who are on uh, anabolic steroids that get yeah. uh, really sick and cholestatic. So they they didn't talk about any of that. I don't know how common that is in Japan. Yeah. Um, certainly in the U.S., it's probably a lot more common than we think. 
but um, yeah, interesting stuff. So why don't we, um, we, I'd definitely like to see more research in this area. Roz, why don't we uh, sure, uh, finish with your two papers? Yeah, and of course we're almost out of time, so I always ha I always go last, and I always have to rush through. But uh, the, the first <laughs> we'll have to reverse order next time. <laughs> well, we want to give our intern an opportunity to talk, but let me just point out a, a critical paper by Alex Senev and colleagues. Uh, Alexander is uh, runs the histocompatibility and immunogenics lab in in Belgium, and this is uh, clinical data from the Leuven group in Belgium. And the focus of this paper is high-resolution genotyping for HLA and whether there's a clinically practical reason. So if you hung out with HLA types like I do, who may be listening to this podcast, there's a debate about whether we should be doing this high-resolution genotyping in specifically two-field. Two-field refers to genotyping where you get both an allele and the antigen. And so the current practice for most of us is, is low resolution, either by DNA or serology, where you get A, B, and DR testing. Some labs like yours at Northwestern are quite sophisticated and most likely do next-gen sequencing out for the, for the 11 antigens for high resolution. And recall that when we measure single antigen B antibodies that these antibodies react with one allele of an HLA molecule or a set of alleles that encodes the same HLA molecule. And so you're taking this, you know, response to maybe more specificity of the HLA antigen and converting it into low resolution. So for example, your patient may be a specific allelic variant of an HLA antigen and of course, they can't have antibody to themselves, but they're going to start triggering some alleles and you're going to potentially exclude donors. And so the long and short of it is this paper utilizes a variety of techniques for high resolution typing uh, in a large cohort of about a thousand consecutive transplant patients from Leuven from 2004 to 2013. And they provide both the high frequency and the low frequency genotyping and, and also the antibody testing. And because we're really short on time and probably um, it's probably worth me just mentioning a few things. First and foremost, in this study, about 25% of individuals were misclassified as having DSAs and, and about 40% of those were in DQ. And again, DQ is a problem as is DP, but again, there is a mismatch and, and potentially an, a misclassification of these patients is not being sensitized. They also use these um, imputation and inferential tools. One's called HLA Matchmaker and the other is um, Haplomatch, I think, for the latter. Um, and they actually look at how they can predict the next gen C or the high resolution, uh, two field high resolution. And, HLA matchmaker does not do as well as this haplostats. And so again, if you're going to be using an inferential tool, again, you may misclassify patients. And finally, there's a lot of discussion about epilet mismatching as being a risk, potential risk stratification for recipients. And in fact, Peter Nickerson's lab has been sort of looking at this and is actually working with FDA to get this as potentially a, a surrogate endpoint in clinical trials. And notably, um, the inferential data uh, misclassified a, a quite a number of these patients um, and is probably not necessarily very useful to consider the ability to use next-gen or high-resolution sequencing. For those of you that aren't into all, and, and they show some survival curves that if you've got a, a DSA negative 
patient, and this is figure three, their outcomes are pretty good. Some of the misclassified patients where you thought they had DSA on low res but didn't on high res do actually better. And then those individuals where they confirm the low resolution predicted DSA do, do uh, poorly. The editorial is really nice by Leanne Baxter-Lowe because she really frames a summary of the data and where we are in this field right now and where we potentially need to go. And so if you don't have time to read the paper, I don't want to say that, read the paper, but go to her editorial because she reminds us that, you know, it's really, you can't do high resolution sequencing of deceased donors. So the vast majority of this cohort, 94% were deceased donor. This was not done at the time of transplant, it's retrospective. But you, you know, where could you do utilize this? Well, the authors suggest, you know, live donors that are sensitized and that makes sense. But you know, Leanne points out you can't do it in deceased donor right now with our current technology. There are new techniques coming up where you could do it in about four to five hours, but the opportunity to do prospective epilet mismatching in a deceased donor to recipient population may have to wait for new techniques to come forward. She also reminds us that versatile cross-matching is really undertaken with low-risk typing. And again, it may exclude potential compatible kidneys. So part of the notion here is not so much protecting the recipient from higher risk events, but allowing them to have more access to transplants. And she finally then sort of says, well, where's the field going now? And you know, one of her calls to action is really how we report our data that when studies are just, you know, blindly just saying, okay, HLA, B, and DR mismatches for, for a clinical trial, that if their laboratory has better data, the journals should really request better data, especially since many labs are doing next-gen sequencing. So really, uh, I think um, an important paper for um, immunogenetics, but also for the clinicians who are basing quite a number of decisions using sort of more standard and, as I said earlier, old-timey techniques. Roz, do you think, um, like, I mean, what would be your sort of estimate on ballpark figure on numbers of grafts saved by having high-resolution typing in the way that you would ideally want it? Like, you have the, you have it all available at the time of transplantation. Do you think right. this would be yeah, a major question. impact or minor impact or somewhere well, in the middle? Well, I mean, it depends on who, the, you know, it depends if you're the one, you know, it depends if you're the one in a thousand. But I think the estimate is about 25% of, of individuals will be mm, classified. Yeah. And how, you know, did that affect their getting a kidney in a certain period of time? Did they wait longer? It could have. I, I think certainly that's one of the points of this paper. Yeah. Um, and the other point is that, you know, these inferential programs don't really help you, uh, particularly for the epilepsy mismatching. They, they, they're the ones in imputation, ones in inference, the inference one haplostats seems to work and function better, but it still has a lot of mistakes. Um, and again, hard to I mean, this is a big, a whole lot of data of a thousand patients, and so certainly something that, again, another criticism is, well, this is a very Caucasian European population. What would it look like in the U.S.? And 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 maybe this is a good argument for us. And I know some individuals are doing this, you know, really looking at their populations and and retrospectively reporting their outcomes, especially by classification like this. Cool. All right, then the. Final with my favorite word, the hallucination. Right. Well, right? <laughs> I always get the, the, the easy paper. So um, this is a basic sign. Well, there was another paper we left out, and I just want to mention that Wang et al. at Duke 
published a brief communication yes. about a model of bladder transplantation in the mouse. And again, we we you know we kind of snicker, but it's important to have a model like that, um, particularly for clinical studies. So again, if you have time, and the pictures are really spectacular. Plus the technical thing, it's just hard to do that kind of work. So the last paper is this inhibition paper with GC7. It's presented. The first author is Sebastian Giraud. He is in uh, Thierry um, OA's lab in uh, Poitiers, and they're in the INSERM lab, and as well as the medical center. And just to sort of put this hypocination thing aside, first of all, um, EIF5A is is a factor that's associated with very recently identified to have to be involved in cell proliferation and protein synthesis, and the protein is novel because it's the one of the only proteins in eukaryotes that contains an amino acid called, called hypusine, H-Y-P-U-S-I-N-E, or L-lysine. So again, it's synthesized, the, the protein becomes activated when you go to a specific lysine residue and get uh, a specific residue from polyamine spermidine. And this GC7 apparently blocks this deoxyhypusine synthase. So you can't make get this factor to be activated when GC7 is present. Now, why do we care? Well, this group showed in a porcine model, and they're very well known for their preclinical, bigger than rodent models like rabbits and, and, and pigs in, in acute kidney injury and delayed graft function. And they've previously shown uh, very elegantly that this factor, um, given the time of uh, organ acquisition, really mitigates a lot of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation and reduces reactive oxygen species production. And if you want to get into the nitty gritty about the mechanisms of programmed cell death and ferroptosis, there's a great accompanying editorial with a figure um, from Andrea, um, Andres Linkerman and his colleagues that's associated with this paper. So what these investigators did is they wanted to look at whether inhibition in an earlier period of organ donation, that is at the time of brain death, would actually make the outcomes even better. And so they actually, it sounds crazy, they actually have a controlled method for inducing brain death in pigs. And then they infuse GC7 or a vehicle and they manage brain death in these animals, which is a highly inflammatory event and also can, as we know, be associated with hemodynamic instability. And then they take the kidneys out after four hours, flush them, put them in cold static storage for 18 hours and then do aloe transplantation and follow these animals up for seven to 90 days. We won't have time to go into all the nitty gritty, but suffice it to say that, you know, treatment at the time of brain death with GC7 did not affect really the hemodynamics. I mean, they still had increased cardiac output and increased MAP associated with brain death, um, but there was a resolution and improvement in reaction oxygen species that were measured and some other um, transcripts that are associated with the inflammatory process of brain death. Treatment in the organ was not associated with changes over time in terms of some of these proteins and ROSs, but it was significantly better than if you looked at vehicle-treated animals. And after cold storage, there was a significant preservation of of um, mitochondrial integrity when you use the substance rather than when you looked at the uh, vehicle. And since most of you all don't get into all this ischemic injury like I do, uh, the proof in the pudding, as they say, is figure 
five, I believe, where they actually do a transplant. And at day seven, the serum creatinines were significantly lower in the treated animals um, compared to vehicle treatment. They had a faster resolution in terms of fractional excretion of sodium, which is an important regulatory aspect of the kidney. And then the, the mind blower is really at day 90, where they looked at these graphs in some animals and showed significant reduction in fibrosis, both by serious red staining and smooth muscle actin, as well as a reduction in both tubulitis and inflammatory cell infiltrates that were present in these allografts. This allograph model, by the way, has sort of slow rejection. So, you know, this is a, a, a very nicely done work. It's a, it's a lot of work. Um, it does beg the question if we should be scavenging you know, ROS molecules, will that reduce long-term graft loss? Will preservation of mitochondrial function improve long-term graft loss? That's one of my areas of interest. Is there a role of this necroptosis programmed necrosis and lipid peroxidation in rejection? Because um, certainly there's a reduction in evidence of rejection in these longer-term animals that are pretreated. So uh, again, I say that this is something out there. You, um, there's a great, you know, sort of structural figure in seven, but in the paper two, that kind of um, hypothesizes the mechanisms of action of this agent. All right, and very that, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, always the question is whether there'll be some clinical application rather than just studying this in an animal model. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, I think so. I think especially since they didn't see really any impact on the donor in terms of um, hemodynamic dysfunction, hypo, further hypotension or tachycardia, and certainly no changes in cardiac output or SDR. So um, I think that's a possibility. But again, whenever you're doing a trial in donors, um, it leads to more downstream issues in terms of how you, you're going to provide informed consent to recipients and in, in mm. the U.S., is it going to involve multiple, um, you know, how is it going to affect organ allocation? Sure. Okay, great. Well, I think uh, that will conclude this. This We're going to resume in 2021. I, I hope uh, it's better, a better year than 2020. <laughs> but it's been a great year for publications, I will say, uh, for AJT especially with all the COVID papers that we went through and also bringing in people like Oscar, the, the, uh, the interns doing this has been a, a great addition. And I guess uh, we will see you guys in, in 2021. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Josh. Have a nice holiday, whichever one you celebrate. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Josh. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 